And we'll invite the ushers to come forward to receive the offering. As they do, go over some of the announcements for the upcoming days. Today, immediately following the second service, is, a, is an appreciation lunch for all children's ministry workers, helpers, and their families. And so if you help in children's ministry in any way, then they're having a catered uh, Mexican lunch for you today. And also, if you've never helped in children's ministry, but you're interested in knowing more about it, a free lunch, and you get to find out a little bit about children's ministry. So they would encourage you to come on out. I guess after first service, you can go out for breakfast and then come back for lunch after second service. So make a note of that. High School Girls Discipleship Group meets today at noon up in the conference room. Today is the last day to buy anything in the bookstore, and it's 70% off right now. So get over there and pick up those last books that you haven't purchased yet or cards or whatever they have left over there. Also, women's ministry meets this week, Tuesday night and Friday morning. Uh, Tuesday night is at 7.15, and Friday morning is at 9 a.m. And newcomers are welcome, and they would encourage you, if you want to get the book, to sign up after first or second service in the foyer for any of you ladies that would like to jump in on this, on this women's ministry uh, study, one or the other. Junior high and high school parents prayer fellowship will meet Thursday, October 26th. Why are we announcing that already? But... <laughs> there are flyers in the foyer. Um, on October 31st, the Halloween Alternative, we're joining with Compass Bible Church for um, a fun and safe family alternative. A lot of great stuff. Candy, food, fun. It's over on Liberty here in Aliso Viejo. There are flyers out there to find out about it. And if you want to donate some candy for it, just drop it off in the foyer anytime between now and October 26th. The uh, junior high group is having a dinner out at the BBs on Friday, October 13th from 6 to 9. If you have questions, see Todd. And their fall camp, junior high camp, is November 10th through 12th, and it's not too late to sign up for it, so do that. Also, the marriage retreat CDs are now available at the tape window, and we will no longer be duplicating cassette tapes of the messages um, because in the new building, we're just not going to have a cassette set up, and we don't get rid of hardly any cassettes anyway. But all of our old tapes are out there, and you, if you're one of these people that's still stuck on cassette tape, we have more cassette tapes than you could listen to before the head goes out on your cassette deck for sure. So go ahead and grab those for free, and CDs and DVDs of the messages will be available as usual also, um, there's a flyer insert in your bulletin today with some information about the dates and times for packing, cleaning, fixing, and moving. The first big work day is October 21st for skilled workers over at the new building, painting, general labor, plumbing, carpentry, and electrical, and the men's ministry won't be meeting on the 21st so that all you guys can go on over and help us out there. I think that's all the announcements. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Philippians chapter 1. It is an exciting time as we look 
toward the new building. We'll be moving here in just a couple weeks. And uh, we're actually scheduled to close escrow a week from now. So that'll be exciting. Then we'll take a couple of weeks to get everything ready over at the new building. And our first service over there will be the last Sunday in October, which is, I think, the 29th. So make a note of that. If you show up here, Compass Bible Church will be meeting here. And, you know, if you just squint, you might not even notice the difference and go, wow, there's a lot of people at church or whatever. But um, it's exciting. If you, if you can't find us, there'll be a map on the door that shows where we went. And uh, tell your friends, especially those people who just come seasonally, so that they'll be able to find us. It's been a time of a lot of excitement as we think about moving and a lot of reflection, too. I, I think sometimes we're moving so hard and so fast that we don't take time to look back. But I guess I'm getting a little sentimental and perspectivistic because of the significance of the fact that we're moving. And I'm looking back on the days that we've spent here and also looking forward to what God is going to do in our church. And I've been thinking more all the time about what's the church here for and what's our vision? What does God want to do within our body? Because going to a new building is not only just an exciting answer of prayer, but it's also a chance to have a fresh start, to take a look again at who are we as a body and what does God have for us? What is his calling on our lives. And so for me, it's an exciting time. And I know it is for many of you too, to just go, yeah, a fresh start is nice. You can look at all the hassles of moving and, and just go, oh boy. Or you can look at it and say, look what God's done. And we're really blessed to be able to be doing this. And, and now to be able to allow God to redefine our church in some ways to hone everything that we do and to lead us into becoming more effective at what God has called us to do. And, and certainly that's what I'm anticipating and looking forward to. I love fresh starts. I love it every year when there's a new year and you feel like, okay, this chapter is behind us and now we're starting over and now we're moving ahead. And I, and I feel that way about our church as we move toward this move here in the next few weeks. And here in Philippians, as we look at the passage that we're going to be looking at today, it is truly, I'm convinced, one of the richest pieces of Scripture that you'll ever read, these three verses. Paul writing to his favorite church, and now he gets to the, to the meat and bones of his prayer for them. He, he loves the church. They're doing well. Things are going, well, they couldn't be going better in terms of what he would expect at that point. And yet Paul has a, has a desire for God to do things in this church still, and not just for them to rest on their laurels. And so he prays this prayer, and in this prayer, I believe, we get down to the bottom line of what our lives ought to be and who we should be as a church. Now, when we talk about what our church should be like, I'm really talking about what we should be like, because the church is us. The church isn't just composed of everyone who's here right now. The church is composed of each of us becoming who God wants us to be, but ultimately our church is much bigger than that, because our church ultimately is all the people that God wants 
to reach through us. There are a lot of people who are a part of our church that don't know it yet because they haven't even accepted Jesus Christ. Maybe because no one's even invited them to come to church yet, and yet it's where they belong. But this prayer nails all of that in just a powerful way. And so let's read it beginning with verse 9, Philippians chapter 1. Paul said, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays for these people. And it's praying for them to start from where they are and to move in a particular direction. Again, the church in Philippi, he had almost nothing bad to say about them. He's going, nice job. I'm writing you to go, way to go. You're doing well. You're heading in a positive direction. But here's what I want for you. Here's my vision for your future, really, is what he's saying. Because that's ultimately what prayer is. And in, in looking at this, we can get an image of the direction in which we ought to move. And really, the prayer of this passage, these three verses ought to be our prayer for our church as we move into this new season, as we have this directional change opportunity that the Lord has presented to us. And it's also a prayer that we ought to pray for ourselves, and we ought to pray for each other. If you want to pray for me, I would rather any day have you pray these three verses then for you to pray about whatever little problem I'm going through this week. I, don't get me wrong, I appreciate it. You know, a week ago, week and a half ago when I fell and had a concussion, I know people were concerned and maybe you're still wondering if I'm all right. But I appreciate you praying for my head. This week I was feeling really good until I got food poisoning and spent Wednesday night, you know, dealing with that. And so... People heard about that, and they're praying for that. But you know what? That stuff's nothing. The truth is, you fall and hit, hit your head, you almost always get better. You get a little cold, you're almost always going to get better. Even if you don't know God, you're going to make it through those things. A little bit of throwing up always makes you feel better. <laughs> but if you want to talk about the needs that I really have, they're right here. And if you want to find out the needs that you really have, they're right here as well. Now, this is good to keep in mind because you know how people come up to you and say, what can I pray for you about? And you freeze up. This should be your fallback position. You can pray Philippians 1, 9 through 11 for me. Because believe it or not, what's in these verses, you need more than you need anything else. Well, let's look through the passage as he says, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Love. We have a need for love. We know that from when we studied Galatians. So he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. We've referred consistently to 1 Corinthians that points out in chapter 13 that if we do anything else but it's without love, it's meaningless. It doesn't do anything at all. But here, Paul could not... This is a loving church. He commends them for their love, and yet... His prayer is 
that something would happen in their love, that they would grow in love consistently. And you know, as it says there, that, you may, that your love may abound. That word there, abound, isn't even a good translation. A better translation would be super abound. The idea is that your love would just be gushing out. But he doesn't stop with that word. That's the strongest word in the Greek that you could use for having more. But then, he not only that, he says that it would abound still. And that word still is a word that talks about, I can't believe it's still going on. Still, yet, always, consistently, continuing. And so he throws that word with it to still superabound is even more than to superabound and much more than to abound. And then, in case you don't get it, he says more and more. What I'm saying is, in the English, it sort of comes across. In the Greek, it's like you could not express stronger, unless you said more and more and more and more and more and more. Couldn't express stronger. Express? Couldn't stress stronger the fact that he's going, you know what you need right off the top? You need to continue to increase and gush forth in love. As Christians, if we get past that, we're done. Once you stop growing in love, if you're not more loving now than you were a month ago, then you're losing what makes us function as a body, as individuals in relationship with God. If love doesn't grow, it doesn't exist. By its nature, it grows in a relationship in a friendship, in a family. The desire that God has for you and for me is that our love would increase just astronomically, logarithmically. And in a church, that's incredibly important. There's a lot of talk today about church growth. And there's nothing wrong with the concept, I suppose, of, boy, we'd like to reach more people. But Real church growth isn't getting more people. And certainly, that's not what gets me excited to think about, wow, what if I could get more people? But real church growth is when we as God's people grow in love. Love for each other, love for God, love for those who don't know the Lord, love for our community, love for the world. That's what we're here for. And that is true love. That is the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is working in our lives, our love is increasing drastically. Now, he goes on to say that you would, you know, increase, abound still more and more. You know, your love would abound still more and more in knowledge. It's easy to grow in knowledge. Just learn more stuff. But knowledge theological concepts and understandings apart from a growing love it's just trivia there are some christians who read incessantly and who are absolutely obsessed with learning more and more theology and theology is good theology is learning words about god that's what the word means nothing wrong with it but knowledge and the word here that Paul uses for knowledge is a word that Paul only uses to refer to a knowledge of God. 
It's a word epigenosko. It's a, it's a word that means that you're really focusing on him and who he is. But he links it with this increasing, growing, overflowing love. Because true knowledge of God, not knowledge about God, knowledge of God, always affects our affections. It always causes us to love more when we really are getting to know God. But again, it's not knowledge for the sake of knowledge, as I say, that's just trivia. But knowledge combined with love, where the more you get to know God personally, the more your love is affected. That's what he's praying for these people. Now, if you have love without knowledge, that can be a problem as well. Knowledge of God becomes the rudder by which our, our love ship is steered. See, love without knowledge so often is kind of like, you know, boy, you feel good, you love God. Especially happens a lot of times when you're a new Christian, just, oh, you're so loving, you care so much. But not focusing on learning and getting to know God better. You become kind of like the airplane that's flying the passenger jet and the pilot comes on the radio and says, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is all of our instruments are out and we have no idea where we are. But the good news is we have a strong tailwind and we're making great time. That's the life of love without knowledge. It's like, man, we're going. We love everybody, everywhere, everyone. That's kind of um, theological liberalism in some ways. A lot of compassion, a lot of love, a lot of care, but no focus, no direction. Love isn't based on anything. He's going, no. And, and so often we make the, we fall into the error of believing that it's either love or knowledge. You either learn or you feel. That's kind of the way often people think of it. But real love can't continue to multiply without real knowledge of God, getting to know Him. And real knowledge of God will always result in love. Again, not knowledge about God, knowledge of God, experiencing God, walking with Him in relationship. And so this prayer that that love would be based in knowledge. That as we grow, as we study the Word of God, that the result of studying the Word of God would, would that we would love more and more and more. And sad to say, some of the most knowledgeable people are not the most loving people. And he puts love first for them and throws knowledge behind it to remind us again that if people don't see how much we care about them, they don't really care how many questions we can answer. They don't really care how much information we've processed. Don't leapfrog love to get to knowledge. He's saying, what I'm praying is, is that if somebody's there at that church in Philippi, and they haven't been there for six months, and they come back and they're going to go, you know what? I feel like these people are even more loving than they were the last time I was here. And I was impressed with their love before, but it's increasing. He's praying, and this prayer is we would pray it for each other. It's, it's me asking God to do a work in my heart in such a way that 
people who get to know me, people who spend time with me would say, you know what? If there's one change I see in your life, you're becoming more loving. Now, there are two ways to do that. One is to set the bar really low. Just be a jerk for a while. Then you don't have to do much and people think you're getting more loving. Another way is to allow God to work in your life in such a way that you don't get past that awareness that if we aren't loving, we are nothing. If we don't send that message, then the rest of our messages don't matter. And Paul goes, oh, I pray that your love would just gush forth, but in knowledge. And then he qualifies it further. After mentioning knowledge, he also says, and and all discernment. That word for discernment means, it's translated other places, judgment. It's the characteristic whereby you take what God is doing and you take what he is telling you and you are able to apply it in your life in a practical and constructive way. Because again, discernment combined with the knowledge of God flooded through with God's love. It's a powerful thing. But if you don't have discernment and you just your idea of loving is I'll just give anything to anyone, pretty soon you're not going to have anything. And you'll say, man, I wish I had saved a little bit for this person. They're much more needy than the other person. All my time is taken up. All of my resources are gone. All of my energy is spent. Love isn't out of control. Just because it abounds and grows more and more doesn't mean that you don't have to listen to God and discern how he wants you to apply the knowledge that you have of God with the love that comes from God. And it's not because love is limited. It's not a a zero-sum game where you can only love so much and then it's gone. God's love is unlimited. The problem? We are limited. As As a vehicle of God's love, there are limitations. Time limitations and strength limitations and capacity and giftedness limitations. And so it's so important that as God's love works in us, that we not only learn Him more and get to know Him more and real real knowledge, but beyond that also, that we have the ability to discriminate and to know where is it that God wants me to put my efforts and my energy and my love? How does He want me to share His love? And with whom? How can I apply what he's telling me? And so each time as we come to the word and we hear about God's character and his nature and we go, I love you, God, and I want to love you more. How can I, what more can I do? What more can I offer? In what ways more can I give? It's important also that we say, and God, please direct me. Knowledge gives us the information. Love gives us the motivation, but discernment gives us the direction, ultimately, in how and where to aim our efforts in order to share our love. And so, it's not an easy thing. I know probably each of us has, at one time or another, loved someone and it was unfruitful. Invested time in someone and it didn't do us any good. 
Other times we do it and does a lot of good. What's the difference? Maybe discernment some of the time is just knowing specifically how God is leading us. So it's, he's praying love over everything. Knowledge, yes. Get to know him. But also learn to apply that knowledge in a way that's going to lead to a fruitful life, to be discerning. Now he zeroes in even further as we come to the next verse. And he says, here's why. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. That word for approve is a word that they used to mean to assay or to assess, to put a value on something. It's like those people that you see on TV, on the road shows, that can look at some old plate that your grandmother gave you and look at it and they can assess what it's really worth. They see its nature. They understand it. They can help you to know, is this something that you should just go ahead and let the kids play with in the sand? Or is this something that you should buy insurance on and lock up? And so what he's saying is that as you are applying God's love in knowledge and in application and discernment, I pray that you'll figure out what's valuable, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you can tell the difference between different things. And it takes an expert in most areas to know the difference between something that's real and fake, something that's good and great, something that's pretty good and something that's incredibly valuable. And an amateur can't really tell the difference. When I look at a Rolex watch, I have no idea if it's a real Rolex or not. They're making pretty good fake Rolexes now. And judging by the email offers that I get every day for fake Rolexes, that are, they're charging up to $250 for a fake Rolex. I don't know what the real ones cost anymore. But if you're wearing a real one, I say you're crazy. Buy a fake one. Nobody's going to steal it. If you bang it up, it won't hurt. And average person can't tell the difference. You used to be able to tell by the sweep secondhand or different things, but it's getting harder. But I suppose that if you really know your Rolexes, you can tell the difference. But I can't. So am I going to buy a Rolex from a guy on the street and go, this better be a real Rolex or I just got ripped off for $50? No, I, if I was going to buy a real Rolex, I'd want to go to a place where I know they know what they're doing. They would stand behind it. And if I ever buy a Rolex, shoot me, by the way. But <laughs> because my Casio is hooked up to the atomic clock, it has perfect time all the time. I wish it would wear out. It's getting so banged up, but it just keeps on going. So, And, and I had it checked. I went to a jeweler and found out it's a real Casio. <laughs> G-Shock, 200 meters, $34 at Costco. So you think I'm going to buy a $250 fake Rolex? I don't think so. But how do you know the difference? And here's why it matters. Maybe it matters when you're buying something, but you're buying something all the time. Each of us are, and each of us is buying what we're going to do with our church, who we are going to become, because we have limited resources, limited time, limited people, limited talent, 
and we're looking at all the choices that we have to make. Oh man, some of these choices, even little ones, we labor over, we struggle with. We're looking now at new signs for the building. And Steve Bailey and I are sending them, emailing each other back and forth. What do you think about this one and that one? And the trouble is the guy who's doing our signs is just too good. And they all look good, but they all look funny. And, you know, it's just, it's crazy to have to make those kinds of decisions. But, you know, really, ultimately, as long as there's a sign out there that tells people where we are, we'll be fine. It could be an old paper sign. But, you know, I'm glad that the Lord has provided for us to have a better one. However, in the church every day there are opportunities for ministry to minister to this person or this person, to support that ministry or this outreach, to invest our time and our facility in this way or in that way. And everything from moving walls around to decide how big classrooms are going to be to decisions about building in the future and all those things, there's these choices that we have to make. And the question isn't, is it good? That's not the question. And that's not the question with most of our lives. We very seldom are sitting here, let's see, should I read my Bible or go shoot someone? See, the problem with us is we have a lot of good choices. They're all fine. We've gotten to the point where in our lives we're not really out there looking to commit crimes. But we have before us more choices than we can take. And we have to select between them. We have to see, okay, how do I prioritize my opportunities? I get my stack of solicitations from ministries. And if you've ever given money to any missions organization, you know what I'm talking about. You get on that sucker list and the, your mailbox just fills up with all of these, and they're all really good ministries and good opportunities, but you realize, I can't do all of these. If I did, I would send a nickel to everyone, and it cost them a dollar to send me this fancy presentation, so that wouldn't be smart. But our lives are that way, and for a church, it's that way. We so need to be able to put value and priority on opportunities that are before us. In the same way that a jeweler puts a loop in their eye and looks at a diamond and discerns how good that diamond really is. Or is it cubic zirconia? Or is it just a piece of glass? We need to be able to have that kind of view of life because if we want to continue to grow and to abound and to grow closer to the Lord and to love in the way that he wants us to love, we just can't afford to exert ourselves on things that don't matter very much because our joy and our love will be destroyed if we start to look at our lives and just go, you know what? It doesn't matter. Nothing that I do has really mattered. And that comes, that frustration comes from just not putting values on things. The squeaky wheel getting the grease. The tyranny of the urgent. I'll just play it by ear. But that's not what God calls us to do. He wants us to be able to approve, as he says here, the things that are excellent. Not, you know, the enemy of the best is not usually bad. The enemy of the best is just good. 
And when we settle for good and we don't look for the best, then we will never become who God wants us to be. Approving the things that are excellent. That Greek word there for excellent is an interesting word. The word is a, is a word that denotes something that's different. It's something that's set aside, really, because it's different. And boy, is that my prayer for my life, that I would have my eyes open spiritually for how I could really make a difference, for something that I could do that everyone else isn't doing. It's why I'm not interested in just seeing what you know, everybody else is doing so that we can copy it. But at the same time, it's like, okay, God, I believe that I am different. And I believe that the people in our church, each of them, unique and special, how do you want to use us? How do you want us to find that specific thing, not settling for okay, but saying, God, we want to be the best that we can be. I don't want, I have no desire to have our church be better than other churches. Have no desire to find our church on the list of the, you know, 10 best churches in South Orange County or the 100 best churches in the country or whatever. I, I have no interest at all in comparing our church with other churches. But there is an interest that I have. And it's for my own life and it's for your lives and it's for our church. I want to be the best that we can be. I want to do the most with what God has given us that we possibly can. I want to continue to be on the path of how can we do better? And how can we assess that which is excellent? How can we, as we set values and establish priorities, how can we see what's the best? Because if we fill our calendar and we fill our building and we fill our lives and we use up all our energy just doing things that are okay, just doing things that are good, the good will rob us of the best. And we can't afford to do that because the life that God wants to work within us, he wants us to be unique. We don't just look for something different. Let's do something that, you know, no one else is doing. I mean, hey, there isn't any pastor out there who's wearing a Mickey Mouse hat while they teach, so let's do that. That'd be cool. Let's go with the whole Disney-themed church. There probably isn't one. We'd get great write-ups. No. It's looking through everything else and saying, God, what difference do you want to do in us? What's excellent? And also praying, God, if there are things that we're doing that are just good, would you show us to get rid of those, to sacrifice those so that we are ready to do something that's great, to do something that's phenomenal, to do something that's excellent. We can do that because of the God we serve. If you don't think we can do that, then you don't know God. This is the kind of God he is, and that's what he wants for us. Again, I, it might mean that we're going to get more people. It very well may mean we're going to have less people. But we need to find out what God has called us to do. And we need to do that with all of our hearts. And with all the love that we can muster as we grow in knowledge and, and discernment, that we'll be able to have a sense of priority and not hesitate to say, this is a good cause, but that's not our calling. 
And this is a great opportunity, but it's not my opportunity. Someone's trying to recruit me for this ministry, but I don't feel like that's excellent for me. I'm going to keep myself available so I can see what it is that I do best, that I can do that is God's calling on my life. Now, in the process, obviously, if someone knows how to assess value, it comes from a lot of experience. And so you certainly go out and try different things. But as a church and as individuals, we better be ready to try something and then back off of it. You know, and it's one of the hardest things in life. There are some people who, because one vision didn't work, they give up on vision. Hey, once you find one thing that doesn't work, great. You know that's one thing that you're not called to do. What else can I try? What else can I do? But ultimately, as we mature in our relationship with God, it's God's desire to work in us in such a way that right away we can look at something and say, that's not good enough. That's not excellent. That's not God for me. I don't feel that that fits with ultimately what he wants me to do. I'll be settling if I go for that. He doesn't want us to settle. He'd rather have us do nothing than to settle for good things that will get us by and keep us from the excellent. But for a church to have this kind of sense of priorities, we all have to be on board. We all have to want to do our part. And we all have to be understanding of those times when, you know, there are some things that you care about that maybe it's not what God has for our church. We can't be everything to everyone. I can't do everything that everyone wants me to do, and neither can you. And may God help us, I pray, that as we move into this new season for our church, I pray that we will all focus on excellence, not looking and going what people think of us, that's not it at all. But can you look yourself in the mirror spiritually and go, I know I am doing what God is calling me to do. And I know that I am doing it the absolute best that I can with his strength and with his help. And I have the courage to eliminate things that get in the way of excellence. Because ultimately, if you do too many things, it's only going to be good. It's not going to be excellent. And so this prayer here is so powerful that you may approve, that you may see the value in things that are different, unique, excellent. And personally, that you may be sincere. That word for sincere means to be tested by the sun. There are a couple of applications of it in ancient Greek. Um, Obviously, if you're looking carefully at something, you bring it into the sunlight to take a look at it. But also, there are some things that you don't know how strong they are or how weak they are until you expose them to the heat of the sun. The same word developed into the Latin word, sinceris, which is the word from which our English word comes. And, but the Latin word means without wax. Sincere, without wax. And you go, how did they get that? Well, again, it relates to the same idea of the heat of the sun. But in, in the Roman days, when Latin was the going language, they had pretty much conquered the Greek culture. And when they came into the Greek culture, one of the things they did, they saw all these statues, and they thought, ooh, that'd be fun to break those up, just like you would if you were a kid. You know, give junior high kid a bunch of statues, something's going to get broken. 
In fact, a bunch of men. Give a bunch of men a lot of fancy statues and a gun. <laughs> well, that was the uncouth Romans. They came in and they just kicked statues over and thought it was cool. You know, wow, look how heavy this is. Hey, guys, it's rocking. Oh, well, later they started figuring, oh, man, those things were really valuable. Somebody will buy them. As the Romans grew up and wanted to be thought of as being more um, sophisticated, they started trying to reclaim some of that Greek culture. Kind of like the way I felt when I realized what a Mickey Mantle baseball card was worth. When I had several of Mickey Mantle's rookie baseball cards, and, well, I hated Mickey Mantle because he cussed me out one time. So, it, it, in 1967, the All-Star Game. And so, <laughs> his rookie card to me, one of them I lit on fire and just burned it. I'm like, Mantle, you jerk, and I burned his card. Another one I dropped in the sewer there by our house. Another one I put in the spokes of my baseball, or in the spokes of my bicycle wheel, whack, 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 you know, until it was ruined. A few years later, I started... When I started seeing that it was worth three or $400, not the several thousand dollars it's probably worth now, I had second thoughts. Well, that's what happened to the Romans. And so they began to go get pieces of these statues and put them back together. And they wouldn't stay together by themselves, and so they took wax, and they melted wax and rubbed it over the joints and stuck the statues back together, and, and the little cracks gave it character. The wax held it together. The problem is, for most of those statues, they wouldn't fit in people's houses. They put them out in your garden, out in front of your house. And you stick them out there for a while, and it becomes summer, and it's very hot over there, and, and eventually the wax would melt, and the statue would crumble and fall apart. And so a really valuable statue was one that didn't have any wax in it at all. And so, in the, in the market there, the Romans would put across a statue, Sinceris, without wax. You can see how that would develop into the way we use the word sincere today. Because everyone seems sincere until they're under pressure, until the heat is on, until they're exposed to the light and the heat of the sun. And now we're going to find out what you're really made of. And Paul, as he's praying for these Christians to have this just abundant love and to have it in knowledge of God and to be able to discern and to assess what's really important, what really matters, then he also says, oh, I want you to be sincere. I want you to be the real thing. When the tough times come, I want you to hold up. I don't want you to be a phony. I don't want you to play a game. And that's my desire for our church, too, that there wouldn't be a bunch of phoniness, that we wouldn't be just playing a game, playing at religion, going through the motions, living like hell during the week, and then coming to church and going, yep, I'm as good as everyone else because I'm as phony as everyone else. It's for God to work in our lives in such a way that there's real change. A statue that didn't have wax but that had chunks out of it was still worth more than a complete statue that was held together by wax. In order for us to really be sincere, in order for us to, to be honest, to be real, we need to be 
honest about our failures and our lack. Don't pretend to be something that you aren't. Sincerity is the first step on the road to recovery, to, to help, to deliverance, to, to, to glory. Is finally admitting who you are. It's going, look, here I am. I'm pretty banged up, but there's no wax here. I'm not pretending anything. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that you don't have to fake it. You don't need wax or glue. You don't need to fool people because he accepts you the way you are. He loves you the way you are. And everything that's wrong with you, he plans on fixing for real. And so Paul's prayer is such an important prayer for for you to pray for me and for how I pray for you and how we pray together for our church. That this would be a place that has no phoniness, that, that we're honest and open. Now, this is something that you grow in. It doesn't just happen overnight. That's why he's praying that it grows. That's why he's praying that it works. But see the goal. Understand the end where God really wants to take us, and that is that we'll be sincere people, that we'll really mean it, that we won't be playing games. And then finally he says, and without offense, not stumbling others really is the idea. There's nothing more offensive. In fact, if, if you talk to people who aren't Christians and ask them why they aren't, the first answer almost universally is hypocrites. And you know what? They're right. There are so many people who talk a good game about being a Christian, but it doesn't work in their lives. They're not living it because they're not doing what Paul is saying his desire for the Philippians is to do. And so the result of it is all you'll do is turn people away from God. Because if they see that you're insincere and phony, if they see that you don't love, that you don't have any kind of discernment, you can't make decisions even for yourself as to what's important and what isn't. You neglect the most important things in your life in order to indulge your life in trivia. They see that and they just go, I don't want that kind of a life. If most of the Christians that someone knows have messed up families and messed up marriages... And people who care about things they shouldn't care about and people who are mean and ornery and judgmental over anyone who's different than they are. And they see that. Why would they want to join? Why would they want to be that? I'm convinced, and I don't mean this as a bad reflection on our church or anyone else's church. I, I suspect it's, it's a bad reflection on all churches as to why it is that people consistently bounce from church to church to church. That's not the way the church is supposed to work, by the way. It's supposed to be a place where you're safe, where it's home, where you feel like, okay, this is where I want to be and this is where I'm going to stay. That's what church is supposed to be like. But why do we treat it more like, okay, there's a blue light special over there on Tuesday nights and over here on Wednesdays I've got this and boy, look at me, I've got the best of all worlds. Why is that? Why is it that our biggest search is to how many different churches can we check out until we find the one? And how often we don't find the one. Now, I can blame people that hop churches for that, but for a minute, let me suggest to you that maybe a part of it is that when people come to a church, even when people come to our church, maybe there's a part of them that feels like 
there's something missing. I don't feel like I'm really connecting with people. I'm not bowled over by their love, and frankly, they seem kind of phony. If that's the case, and I'm not saying that it is, I'm suggesting that perhaps that's an element, then what are you going to do? You're going to stumble on out the door and go check somewhere else and hope that the next place doesn't offend you. Hope that the next place isn't a place where you go, I can't believe it. Isn't there some place where I can just go and be at home in the body of Christ? And what God's desire for all of the churches, not just for ours, but all we can do something about is ours, is that it's a place where when you walk in the door, you feel like this is real, and I'm not stumbled. I'm not offended. I, I don't have a feeling like I'm, I'm a, a visitor. I'm a person that they're wondering what I'm doing here or how they can take advantage of me, or they're just kind of checking me out to see if they approve of who I am or not. Or they seem more interested in just what they can build and what their kingdom is and how good they feel about themselves than they care about me. That's stumbling. And personally, when our lives take on hypocrisy, the thing that happens, obviously, is it will stumble others. It'll keep other people from finding the knowledge that we say we live by because we miss the priority because we miss the, the discernment and the love that God wants to give us in our lives. I've never heard anyone say about any church, I visited that church, and they were just so incredibly loving. It creeped me out, and I had to leave. <laughs> of course not. Even if we can't admit it, we all know that's what we need. We need to be in an assembly of people for whom this prayer is being answered. That your love would abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. That you could approve the things that are excellent. That you'd be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. What a prayer. And then he wraps it up by giving the motivation and the bottom line ultimately. And he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, having God grow everything within us, which are by Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And that's what it's all about. It's not let's be like this so that people can praise us, so that we can enjoy the glory, so that we can feel the warmth, so that we can just know we're a part of something really special. I don't want any glory. I don't want us to have any glory collectively. And I don't pray that you'll feel glory ever. What I pray is that you'll walk with God in such a way that he is glorified, that he looks good. The best, most rewarding feeling in the world for an individual or for a church is for someone to look at you and go, boy, is God good. And that's what it's all about, glorifying God, because he is the one that we want people to be drawn to, because he's the one that can help them. We can't. One of the hazards of being on a pedestal is that people think that you can actually do something. It's one of the things as a pastor that's disconcerting, is that I'll teach the Bible, and people maybe listening on the radio, they hear, and, and God touches them. But instead of going, wow, and turning to God, 
they call because they've got to talk to me. And they expect me to be able to somehow solve their problems, answer all their questions, be everything that really God is to them. And I'm like, look, I don't, I, I mean, praise God, he's, he's used me in a way. But listen, I mean, and, and people don't understand this, that when I listen to myself on the radio a lot of times, I'm amazed. I'm like, well, that's pretty good stuff. I wonder where, where did I get that? Where did that come from? Not because I used to be a lot smarter than I am today. It's because of God. If there's anything good, if God speaks to you ever on a Sunday or a Wednesday or any other time during the week and I'm involved, it's not because of me. Believe me. And if you got a little closer to me, I promise you, you would be disappointed. But the glory of God, that's what it's all about. That we could see Him and we would glorify Him. And that is the bottom line of what I want to see God do in our church. And that's what I'm praying for each of you individually and for all of us collectively. Again, that we would be the kind of church that love is just oozing forth. But not just squishy, sentimental love. A love that's based on real knowledge of God. Being real students of who He is and getting to know Him as a result. And discerning. Deciding how we apply his word and being able to set priorities so that we're not killing ourselves trying to do as much as we can because we don't know what to do. Like those days when you go to work and you're so far behind, you don't know where to start. You walk in your garage and you're going to clean the garage and it's like, I don't even know what to do. But having the kind of discernment that is able to look with the eyes of God and say, God, only have so many opportunities and so many hours. What's really special and unique right now? What is something that you want me to do that will have powerful dividends? And in so doing that, and in making that kind of discernment, in allowing God to work in our lives, then we become sincere and blameless or without stumbling others. We're just real. Because the pressure's off us. It's not about us. It's about God and His glory. And that is why this prayer is so powerful ultimately. It starts with love, the greatest gift, the most important characteristic of our lives, the one that, if it's not there, it eliminates everything else, and it ends with the glory of God. And that's why we were created, to bring glory to Him. When we bring glory to him, we will be a part of something amazing. We're not going to be all depressed and bummed out. People aren't going to walk in and go, what's wrong? Because we'll be rejoicing and celebrating what God has done. And, and that is my prayer for all of us. If you want to pray for me, pray this prayer. That'd be great. I would so appreciate it if I saw God doing this in my life this week. That would be huge. And I want to challenge you over the next three weeks or whatever it is, between now and when we move into that new building and have that fresh start, I'm requesting that each person in our church, each person here, every day once would pray these three verses for our church. And I wonder what God will do. 
I wonder how he would work if each of us, if it's at lunch or breakfast or before we go to bed or when we get up, if we would print these three verses out and stick it somewhere where we go, God, for, for Calvary Chapel Pacific Hills, this is what I pray. It's a great prayer. And I think that God will do amazing things. And as we are a part of this church, he'll do amazing things in our lives as he works in this church because ultimately working in the church is working in the people of the church. And so please, and, you know, if you don't do it, it's not bad luck or you're breaking a chain and something horrible is going to happen to you. I'm just asking. Pray that prayer. I will be praying this prayer every day for the next three weeks for our church. And I'm asking that as many of you as God lays it on your heart, just join me in praying that prayer. It's It's powerful not because of the words, but because of what's behind it and ultimately because of who's behind it. Let's pray. Lord, as we've gone through these verses, we offer it to you now. And we pray that you would do this in our body and in each of our members. And as the sign that you're answering our prayers, help us to just notice, I'm loving more. Wow. And help us to see you glorified.